Hey church family, this is Tyler Birch, one of the ministers here at Anacortes Christian Church. I want to take a second and thank you for joining us today. We know that life is busy, and there's a lot of other things that we could be spending our time doing, so thank you. We hope that this podcast serves as a tool for you to grow closer with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you have questions about ACC, like who we are, where we're located, and other key information about this incredible body of believers, check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. It's a new start to a new series this week. Last week we finished up our series on prayer called Teach Us to Pray, going through the Lord's Prayer. And this week we're starting a new one called Teach Us to Rest. And so you go, I see what you're doing. There's a theme going on here. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So Teach Us to Rest. But what do we mean by teach us to rest? And when you think about it, why would anyone need to be taught how to rest? It sounds like rest would be easy, right? Rest is just to stop doing something, take a nap, rest. But it's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. We're talking about a certain kind of rest. We're talking about Sabbath rest and the theme of Sabbath in the Bible. And we're going to spend a few Sundays on this. Um, Next Sunday, of course, is Faith Promise, so we'll take a break um, then, and we'll come back to it. But we all know that to be healthy, we need a certain amount of rest, right? Even just physical rest. This last Friday, my wife and I were blessed as my parents uh, took our four kids for the night, and we got to have a double date with our friends. And, and that night, as we're going to sleep, my wife said, I don't remember when the last time was that we could sleep in as long as we wanted the next morning and, and just, you know, have that time and just wake up slow or whatever. And so it was fantastic. We got to rest. We woke up at 7.30. And my wife talked about that like that was the best thing in the world, you know. Um, Yeah, there's something about when you're not used to waking up late, you just can't really do it. It's hard, you know, you just, 7.30. How many of you are feeling rested this morning? You know, it's uh, daylight savings time. You all lost an hour. I lost an hour. Maybe you didn't lose an hour. I I lost a few hours. (laughs) Last night was, uh, yeah, for me... There was not much rest due to daylight savings. We had a progressive dinner, and I still had a lot of work to do on this message. This is a huge topic, and so I have been just reading and studying and taking tons of notes and got a pretty late start actually putting a message together, and so I stayed up really late working on today's message, and I've got my my handy-dandy, convenient little watch that supposedly tracks my sleep and how much rest I'm getting and all that stuff. And it told me that I got three hours and 29 minutes of sleep. And 20 minutes, 27 minutes of that was supposedly deep sleep, whatever that means. 45 minutes of that was REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. And that's the kind of sleep that they say you're supposed to get. You know, you need an eight-hour sleep every night, supposedly, Um, but it doesn't count if you take like eight one-hour naps because the point is to get enough sleep to get enough REM sleep because that's the kind of sleep that actually rejuvenates your 
your body, your mind, and so on. So I'm probably only operating at like half capacity right now. My sleep score was 47. It said poor. I once heard uh, Timothy Keller say that Sabbath rest is the REM sleep of the soul. It's a different kind of rest. It's a rest that we all need. And that's, it's kind of paradoxical when you look at our culture today. Because when I look at my life and our culture around us, I see, I see two big um, conditions that are pretty paradoxical. One is we seem to be defined by convenience and our quest for convenience. And two, we seem to be characterized by our busyness. Okay, and you would think that those things would not go together. What do I mean by that? It seems like every new advancement, you know, we, we, I mean, our cars drive themselves now. You know, you don't have to do that. Um, we've got our, our phones that can just do everything at a touch of a button. You can, I could plan a vacation from my stage, if, right, from this stage right now, if I wanted to. You can order pizza. You know, you, you can do so much with so little effort. And, and our technology, our quests, our striving is for convenience, okay? We don't want to be inconvenienced by anything. And yet, though the message is usually, now you can do the things that you want to do, you know? Though the message is usually, through convenience, through technology, you will have time, right? You will rest. And we're like, yes, we need rest, convenience, buy the new phone, Right? But we're not less busy. Okay, we're, we're more busy than ever before. Because what we tend to do is we free up that time, and instead of actually resting, we just fill that time with more stuff. And so, you know, I've heard a lot of elderly people in my in conversations just say, man, the world is just fast today. It is just a fast-moving world because we are operating by our tyrannical schedules, right? It is just a fast-paced world where we have this paradox. And in fact, there's been studies that show that you get used to it and you get used to busyness and a certain amount of stress. And it's kind of like a drug because your brain adapts to it as a new normal. So when you're not busy, you, there's something wrong. You start to go into anxiety. You start to panic a little bit and you've got to fill that something. You know, the idea of silence for some people is terrifying. You know, what, what do I do? What podcast should I turn on? What entertainment do I need to absorb? Because there's nothing going on right now. That's, that's, there's something wrong, right? We're not used to rest. And so we've got this crazy paradoxical thing happening where on the one hand, we have more convenience than we ever had before, affording us more time than we ever have allowed for before, and yet we're more busy as a culture than we've ever been before. So there is something going on there. There's a disconnect. There's something we're reaching for, but we're missing because we don't have the discipline for it. Okay, there's something about us that can't easily discipline ourselves to rest. Maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe that's why God commanded a day of Sabbath rest once a week in the Ten Commandments. Okay, it's one of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. And we'll read that from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I want you to consider some things. Observing the Sabbath is the only proactive, application-oriented commandment in the Ten Commandments, like in the Bible, okay? It's the only one. Like, as far as, like, what are all the things God asks us to do? Well, really, there's one, and this is it. Um, Yet, it is the one that Christians tend to pay the least attention to. And for some reason, I, I'm not sure what the reason is. Maybe we feel like, well, we really don't need that. Um, maybe we feel like Jesus made it irrelevant. There are texts in the New Testament that could lead us to, to believe that. And we'll, we'll speak to that in a little bit. You know, we just went through a series on prayer, teach us to pray. That makes a lot of sense, right? Prayer is important. Um, teach me to pray. I want to know how to pray. And yet consider Prayer is not in the Ten Commandments. And, of course, it's important. We wouldn't have preached on it if it wasn't. It's implied throughout. I don't even know if you can actually make that connection or not. But, I mean, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our bread for tomorrow is hearkening back to a Sabbath observance, trusting God for the seventh day rest, right? That's, I mean, this dead center, the hinge point of the Lord's Prayer points towards Sabbath, okay? In fact, all scripture points towards Sabbath. I will, I will make that statement. It, points, it all points towards an ultimate Sabbath. Okay, so it's important to understand what this is, why we need it, what it's, what it's all about. I've been uh, you know, devouring lots of resources. If you want to go deep on this, and, and really quite entertaining, um, the Bible Project has a podcast, and they have a series on the Sabbath that's like 12 episodes long or something like that. So if you want to listen to something about Sabbath for 12 hours, it's really good. It is. Um, one objection, though, would be, okay, like what are we talking about here? Because didn't Jesus like cancel that or abolish it or fulfill it? Um, you know, we've got passages that, that talk about resisting those who tell you you have to observe certain ordinances that were um, characteristics of Judaism, some of the more ritual practices, because it was, if it, especially if it was seen as a way to get to God or earn God's favor. And that's true. In Christ, because we have Jesus, you do not need to perform a ritual. You do not need to every week have a legalistic celebration, a ritual in order to uh, maintain your salvation. Okay, but I did hear somebody say, to challenge that as legalistic is kind of like saying, uh, my family and I go on a vacation every year just so we can take some time and be together as a family and do nothing else, and then someone objecting and saying, how legalistic of you. You know, it's, why wouldn't you want to do it? We still need 
Sabbath. We don't have to do a ritual to earn God's favor, favor, but we all need Sabbath. We need the rest. You need the thing that the ritual was pointing towards. We are all wired for it because we are made in God's image. The only reason we don't need the ritual anymore is because Jesus provides for us what the ritual was pointing towards, which means that if you claim to be in Christ and you don't have Sabbath rest in your life, if you don't experience rest, then you don't know what you have in Jesus. Now, personally, one of the reasons we're doing these kind of how-to series is for a little while is because these are things that I want to experience more. I, I've, the more we preach on Hebrews and prayer and everything, the more Sabbath pops up. It just keeps popping up, the allusions to it, all over the place. And so I want to know more about what this is about. And, and also, I want to put some feet to my faith. I don't know about you, but it's easy to have a lot of head knowledge. And then as soon as you go out the door, it's like, it's almost like there's this force that's like, all right, let's get back to normal. I own you. You know, this is your schedule right now. These are the sports games you have to attend. These are your appointments. This is the school stuff. This is all the things you have to do. And there's sort of this like inability to get out of that and actually consider how we live this faith out. And so um, I want to apply it personally. Um, we're commanded to rest. Why? Well, there's two reasons given in two different accounts of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and this week we're just going to look at the first one and what it means, and we're only scratching the surface. First of all, we rest because God rested, but that begs a number of strange questions. We read for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, two quick questions. Why would we celebrate? Why are we asked to celebrate God's creation through resting? Like, wouldn't you choose something like creating, you know, working, doing a project as a group or something to celebrate creation. Why rest? Why does God do that? Two, why would an almighty God need to rest? Does God get tired? Does God get weary? Did he need a break? And the answer is that probably what the scripture means by rest is not what we think of as rest. It's not what we would think. The passage in question that it points to is Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. In the Bible, there's two kinds of work. There's two words for work. One is melaka, and the other is avodah. Okay, avodah is the kind of work that involves exertion. Okay, it's spoken of in regards to slavery. Okay, it's toilsome labor kind of work. Malaka is like tinkering. Okay, it's creating. It's taking raw materials and perfecting them and turning them into something higher and greater. And in most of Genesis, 
That's what God is doing. And the only word that's used for God's style of creating in Genesis is melaka. okay? So it's not the kind of work that makes you tired. It's creative work. There's a few things that God creates from nothing, but most of what he's described as doing is ordering, okay? He's taking chaos and lifeless void, um, uninhabited and uninhabitable, and separating things, day and night, uh, light and dark, and the skies and the seas, and he's filling them, and he's creating order and beauty, and he brings it to a point where it's good, right? Where it's very good, he says. So he creates life and order out of lifeless chaos by tinkering with the things he's made, by manipulating, changing raw materials. And we, made in God's image, are called to do the same. Okay, we, we are called to uh, work and cultivate his creation, the garden that he puts man into, right? And so when we take something, we, when we take wood and we build something or we take um, materials and we make art and can't, you, this is all reflecting God's image. We're taking the stuff that he gave us and he says, now you take this further and we make beautiful and useful things and that is what it is to be made in God's image, But it all has to lead to a point. If you're always becoming, you're never being. Okay, if you're always creating, you're not enjoying, you're not experiencing. So all of it was to lead to the seventh day, where God could dwell in it and settle in and say, it's very good, and he could rest there. Rest is the point of work, not the other way around. Uh, There were parallel creation stories from neighboring people groups to Israel, like the Enuma Elish. And in those stories, usually humans are created as slaves to do slave kind of work, abadah work, labor, so that the God could rest. But this God calls us to bear his image by, well, actually, our first day is at rest, right? Right? Our first day isn't God's first day where we have lifeless chaos to do something with. He gives us rest on the first day as a starting point. And then he calls us to continue to dwell with him and to cultivate and keep and work the ground and so on, always pointing towards seventh day rest, Sabbath rest. We're invited in to enjoy God and enjoy his creation together. There's always a point behind working, behind making things, and it is to get to Sabbath. That's the point. David Foreman, a Jewish rabbi, said, to explain, rest always provides a complement to work, but different types of work call for different kinds of rest. Exertion calls for a kind of rest we call relaxation. Lack of exertion helps us become refreshed. But the complement to creativity is not a similar kind of absence. The complement to creativity, perhaps, is a mysterious phenomenon, and he calls it positive rest, proactive rest. And if you notice, when you read Genesis 2, a number of scholars and rabbis and so on have pointed out this apparent paradox where it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And then the next sentence is, 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so they say, well, which is it? Did he finish working on the seventh day and then rest? Or did he uh, only rest on the seventh day from all his work? And the solution that many come to is, on the seventh day, the last work was to create rest. Okay, rest is a proactive forward motion. It's not just to stop, but it's an actual act, okay? It's a, it's, it's a deliberate act. In reality, creativity is only a means to an end. Creativity is about bringing something into being, but that's not a final goal. The final goal of creativity is being itself. The substance of work in creation is becoming. Much of our lives are defined by becoming. We're helping our workplace into becoming. We ourselves are becoming. The substance of rest and Sabbath is being. If you are perpetually becoming, you can never experience being. Sabbath is the purpose of the created universe. In the words of David Foreman, Shabbat, the Jewish Hebrew word for Sabbath, and its rest is portrayed as the very purpose of creation, the end for which the entire heavens and earth were created. As long as something is under construction, it is not complete. It is not independent. When I stop, when I cease building or creating, it is now what it is. Okay, my hands are off. It has its own independent existence. Ceasing, stopping, sabbathing allows creator to relate to that which they have made. Relationship requires independence. Without stopping the creative process and directing the flow and ordering things, relationship cannot exist. Think about it. Sabbath is a final creative act, granting independence and therefore allowing a relationship. There's a big difference between always having to fix something or someone and actually just being able to enjoy it as it is, right? I love to tinker with things. I, uh, my, my, my dad had a construction company as I was growing up, and um, actually... For that reason, I hated construction. Like, I hated building. I hated having to sit around his job sites because all the things I had, to, you know, my work in those places was like pick up nails, okay, you know? So, so I had this foul taste in my mouth, but then, you know, we buy a house and there's all these projects that need to be done. And, and so like, we wanted a uniquely sized kitchen dining room table to fit our space. And so I got plans on the internet and I had a blast building a table. And then... Like the wood shrunk a little bit and the seal between the boards started to separate and crack. And so there's this ongoing like, I got to fix it. You know, I got to fix it. Built this great bench, um, like banquette seating had storage in it. It's like, you know, there's some great but temporary satisfaction that comes from something like that. And then, you know, we've got kids and so it looks pretty scuffed up and dirty now. And there's this like, ah, I got to fix it. And uh, I love to build these little wooden box drums called cajones. 
Um, if you've seen us play them from time to time, somebody had one and I was like, I bet I could build that, you know? And, and the thing is, like, it's never, there's this temptation to never be done. And I don't know why, but I keep going back and doing it again. And they're not like that special. It's, it's a wooden box, okay? You know, with a, with a thin piece of plywood and you hit it and it sounds like a, a whole drum kit in one, you know? And it's, it's a blast. But there's something about sanding that thing that... Oh, I left a little thing here, and I got to fix that. And you got, and you just, you almost can never take your hands off until, like, especially if it's plywood, you go through the veneer, and now it's like, ah, you know, now you can't fix it. You've done damage to it. You've actually created too much. You can't just take your hands off and, and let it be. And uh, I'm building another one right now. Actually, it's kind of funny, but um, Sabbath allows the one that's creating to relate to its creation. And so when you think about it, if you're always trying to shape and fix your kids or your spouse, you can never have a relationship, right? If it's always about what they need to do better or change or fix, if you can't just stop and enjoy them for who they are, there's no relationship, okay? And and now we're called, especially with our children, we are called to... Um, raise them up and shape them in some way and mold them. And there's a point where they are to be independent and only when they're independent can they actually relate to us, right, and to the world. But if you're still trying to shape your 24-year-old son or daughter, you're probably destroying the relationship. Like there's a point where you have to back off. That doesn't mean we don't sharpen one another as, as individuals and, and help each other. Uh, iron sharpens iron six days of the week, right? But there has to be some pulling back. There has to be some rest to actually enjoy the relationship. And that tells us something about God, that all of creation was pointing towards relationship. Okay, that's the point of seventh-day rest. That's the point of this kind of rest is it creates relationship. It doesn't just take a nap. Okay, it creates being, dwelling with the people and the creation and appreciating it on its own terms and not trying to manipulate it. And so that's what seventh-day rest is all about. Why do we have such a problem with this? Why are we a culture addicted to both convenience and busyness at the same time? Perhaps because there is something very seductive about our work. But when we can't let it go, oftentimes our work becomes the opposite of what it was intended for. It becomes destructive. You see, when we never rest, we end up destroying the thing you know, conforming it, twisting it, damaging it beyond recognition because like that drum that, you know, gets overworked and now it has this permanent flaw. We just couldn't take our hands off. And we end up damaging each other. We end up ruining each other. Most of all, when we don't rest, we can damage ourselves. And why wouldn't we rest? The reason is, is because deep down there's this sense that our work defines our value. Okay, there's something about needing to achieve something that's going to bring this sense of satisfaction and this sense of identity and worth. I remember Tim Keller is always pointing to chariots of fire where there's this 
scene where, you know, the one runner refuses to run in the Olympics on the Sabbath, but the other is completely enslaved by and driven by the race. And there's this famous quote, this famous line where it's like, what drives you? What, what keeps you going? And he says, uh, in that dash, in those, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to justify my existence. Or like Rocky, why are you working so hard? Because I want to prove I'm not a bum. You know, we attach ourselves and we identify ourselves by our, our work and our worth by our work. And we, we don't stop because it's never quite enough. The author that I was um, reading, this Jewish rabbi, talked about uh, a couple of interesting examples. First of all, he talked about a, a test that he took, or not a test, excuse me, a college paper that he had to write. And he said this prof, this professor, was always kind of messing with him a little bit. And so he said, hey, I want you to know you're going to write this paper. It's going to require a lot of hard work. You're going to work really hard on this paper. And very few of you are going to be able to get an A on it. Okay, it's just it's that hard. You're, most people are not going to get an A on this paper. And, and then he said, he said, so I want you to consider whether the payoff is worth the reward. It's kind of like, well, you saying you don't want me to work hard on this paper? You know, like, like, I want you to think about, like, is all that work that you're going to put into this worth the A that you might get? And so sure enough, the author works his tail off on this paper, and he gets an A. Now, the point the professor's trying to make is, it's about the journey, not the destination. Like, enjoy the process not just the outcome or whatever. And there's merit to that. Um, but he works his tail off and he got an A. And he was thrilled for about half a day. And then it wore off, you know. He spent six months, or probably not six months, I don't know, probably six weeks on this paper for six hours of satisfaction. And when you really think about it, we're in a world where very little of our work really pays off with the satisfaction we're looking for, right? It doesn't really give us what we're trying to get out of it. There's always something that we're trying to grasp that we don't seem to be able to get a handle on. And uh, the other analogy that he used And now my mind went totally blank. I forgot the other one. Maybe it'll come to me. Maybe we'll come back to it. The point being, there is a never-ending drive for satisfaction. And it seems very fleeting. So what's the payoff? And his point was, the drive to satisfaction from work and the temptation to be defined by our work, you get at least some respite from that. It may seem depressing that in this world we can't really take much lasting pleasure in accomplishment. We do have a consolation prize. We have Sabbath, a little taste of being, a little taste of eternity, right smack in the middle of the world of becoming. Oh, I remember what it was now. He had a friend who was an author who spent years writing a book. He finally finished it. And they threw a big party for him, and he was really exuberant and elated for about a week. And then he went into this depression 
because he didn't know what to do with himself. And when the book arrived, he never even cracked it open. You know, it's just this satisfaction doesn't last. So we have this drive, but this idea of Sabbath is that you can experience what our work is leading to as a discipline. Sabbath is a signpost of our future hope. The signpost of our future hope. One reason I think it's important, we are so dictated by our schedules, the thing that we don't have a lot of is disciplined rituals because they seem kind of archaic or a little too stoic or rigid or whatever. But if you were to talk to a person who practices the Sabbath on a weekly basis about their future hope, about the world to come, and they say, yes, I believe in that hope. For us, it's a little different. You know, it's Jesus returning, resurrection, all that. But if you ask us, do you believe that? Well, I might say, yes, I believe that. But if I haven't been practicing something that gives me a taste of that future hope on a regular basis, then when my faith in that hope is tested, all I have is some mental argument. For some people, they can say, you know, I have an experience that I can point to, a weekly experience of rest, of absolute being, just being satisfied and enjoying creation and enjoying one another. And that's a foretaste of what's coming. And so how much stronger is that faith going to be in the midst of a test when you have an experience that you can point towards and say, yeah, you know what? That sounds a lot better because I have a taste of that, right? Sabbath is a signpost of our future hope. You know, there's a big pattern in Genesis. Actually, there's a lot of patterns, lots of patterns. Genesis 1 alone is a very sophisticated book, but it's all broken up into sevens, lots of sevens. Actually, the whole book of Genesis is broken up into sevens. And uh, the word for seven, there's a homonym there. The same word that's spelled seven is the same word that is a word for completeness or wholeness. It's also the same word for oath, sometimes covenant, because the, and the themes get joined together in a lot of ways. So, for instance, in Genesis 1, it begins with seven words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, so you got seven words. Now, the thing about seven, whenever you see sevens, there's symmetry, right? It's kind of like, I've shown you pictures of, like, chiasms before. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. But, like, there's three on either side, and often when the author is pointing out seven of something, there's a hinge point in the middle. The fourth thing is important, okay? In Genesis 1, the fourth word is untranslated. It's not in English because all it does is point to a direct object. You don't need to know grammar today. That's not the point. But the fourth word is the first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet joined together. It's the beginning and the end. Smack dab in the center of the seven-word sentence, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You have the beginning and the end. That's the first sentence of your Bible. And the last sentence that Jesus speaks on the last page of your Bible, Jesus says, I am the Greek letters, alpha 
and omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus is most certainly pointing himself back to page one on the last page of your Bible. So you've got seven there, and then you have seven days broken up, and then you have the verse we read, which is three lines of seven words. Okay, so all of this has meaning. In the seven days of creation, what's the hinge point? What's the hinge point? What's the middle? It's the fourth day, right? What's the fourth day? It's the only other day that's also about time. The first day is about time. Night and day are created. The last day is about time. Sabbath, rest, and the middle day, the fourth day, is about time. God created the sun, moon, and stars, and they are to serve as signs, pointers for seasons, days, and years. But the word seasons isn't really the word seasons. It's the word festivals. Same word that Leviticus uses as festival. You'll see where I'm going with this. If you were a Jewish kid reading this or a Jewish person reading this, you would pick up on that and you would say, oh yeah, because Leviticus 20-something says that there's seven festivals. And all of those festivals involve stop working. They all involve ceasing. What am I getting at here? You have time starting, God moving creation out of chaos and disorder, moving it into order and life. And right in the middle along the way, you have a signpost that observes a pointer, a sign towards an eternal Sabbath. Why? Because every day, day one through six, is marked by evening and morning. It was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the seventh, second day. It was evening and morning the third day. You get to the seventh day, there's no evening and morning. And most scholars agree that's intentional. Why? Because the point is that what is set up is an eternal, ongoing Sabbath rest that we can enter into or not. And that's kind of the tension are the people that God created to be his co-rulers going to dwell with him in eternal Sabbath work and rest? Or will we try to create our own Sabbath? Will we create our towers of Babel and our technology and endlessly strive and attain for our own version of rest, believing that we can create eternity, we can create Sabbath, we can create convenience at the tip of our fingers, all the more only doing what God said we would do in Genesis 3, toiling for bread until the day we die because from dust we came into dust we will return, working ourselves to death to create a counterfeit Sabbath. The point of Genesis 1 is that all of history is pointing towards an ultimate seventh day rest, and God invites you to tap into that now. And so Hebrews 4, 9 through 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works as God did from his. And what do we get when we experience that? I'm not so driven to perform anymore. I'm not so driven to perfect it. Why? Because I have been 
recreated through Jesus and by his finished work, God can now look at me and say, it is good. You see, on the cross, Jesus hanging there on the cross, Jesus who had done most of his ministry on Sabbath days, Jesus who was challenged for that, Jesus who called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, hung from a cross, and one of the things he said was, it is finished. What was finished? What was finished? What was the work of the cross? And then Jesus went into a tomb, and he rested in a tomb on the Sabbath day. And the dawn of the third day was a dawn of a new creation, a day where Jesus emerged complete and whole and resurrected, and he invites us to follow him into that. What does that do for us? Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions about food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, all of it was pointing to Jesus. Why? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, Your toiling for bread won't result in life. Your salvation is not a result of your work, and your work will not ultimately give you the defining identity that you want it to. It cannot come as a result of our work. What does he say next? He says, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship about whom Jesus said it is finished on the cross, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, I don't feel very complete today. Like, I still struggle with plenty of sin and incompleteness. But the point is that Jesus purchased my completeness by allowing himself to be completely decreated, succumbing to lifeless chaos and void, allowing it to completely engulf him so that because I no longer am defined by my incompleteness because he took that away from me, he took my sin on the cross, Jesus, God, can now look at me and see the work of his son. He can see his work and he can say, you are finished and because you are a completed work in Christ, I can now dwell with you. I can have a relationship with you. And we ask God, please, don't take your hands off the wheel. 
Please keep forming. Please keep changing me. And that's happening by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the difference is, is that when you've surrendered your life to Christ, the guarantee of that future completion is so absolute. It is as absolute as a power that raised Jesus from the dead that I can bank on that truth, that future reality, as if it is today's reality because that's exactly how God sees you. He sees me that way as a completed work, a seventh day rest, a relationship. But when we don't stop, when we can't take our hands off the wheel, when we keep trying to define ourselves by something else, we become slaves to something else, and we don't have a relationship. So God invites you to be, because in Christ, You have become, if you're in Christ. You've become a new creation. So you're invited to dwell with him. Doing that, disciplining ourselves to do that, is difficult, but it gives us a taste of our future today. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to take a second and remind you that we love you God loves you, and you always have a place here in Accordus Christian Church. Our services are at 8.15 a.m. and 10 a.m. every Sunday. We hope to see you soon.